So then let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Tonight's Dhamma talk is based on your question. And the first questions are about Can you explain further the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness? And the question, can you explain the five aggregates? Yes, I will start with the five aggregates. Then it's a bit easier to explain the third and fourth foundation of mindfulness. They're closely related. So the five aggregates are what the Buddha called is a being, uh, a human being made of or constitutes a human being. There are five aggregates. The aggregate of form, rupa, kanda, which um, means the physical body. And then the other four aggregates belong to the mind or mental phenomena. So there's the aggregate of feeling, the Vedana Kanda, feeling, as you know, feeling tone. Then the aggregate of perception, Sanya Kanda. Then the aggregate of mental formations, Sankara Kanda. And the aggregate of consciousness, Vijnana Kanda. So in regard to the first kanda, rupa kanda, uh, material form, you know, we have, I have talked about it, you know, materiality is basically made of the four primary elements, earth, water, fire, and air. So these are kind of the building blocks of materiality. Then Vedana kanda, uh, the feeling tone, I have also explained quite in detail, you know, the three feeling tones that are present with each experience in body, in the mind. can be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And I've explained why it is so important to be aware of the Vedana, the feeling tone, because that's closely linked with our reaction to an experience to sense input. Then, the aggregate of sanya, perception. So this is one mental factor that has the task to recognize what the sense data is. Vedana is also a mental factor, and so its task is to see whether the experience is experienced as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Sanya, as a mental factor, has just this 
one task of recognizing um, what is perceived. You know, like if something is seen, then there are certain forms and colors. And so then based on previous experiences, this certain form and color is then recognized as a tree or a person or one's friend, car, mountain, etc. And then the Sankara Kanda, the aggregate of mental formations, this is this contains the remaining mental factors. Like in Abhidhamma teachings, there are altogether 52 mental factors. And Vedana is one of them. This forms an aggregate on its own. Sanya is a mental factor, also an aggregate on its own. That means the remaining 50 mental factors belong to the Sankara Kanda, to the aggregate of mental formations. You know, these are mental factors such as loba, great desire, dosa, aversion, hatred, moha, delusion, um, karuna, uh, sada, virya, samadhi, and so on. And then, the fifth aggregate is Vijnana Kanda, that's the aggregate of consciousness. And actually there are six types of consciousness, depending on the sense door. So what is seen with the eyes is the eye consciousness, the seeing consciousness. Depending on the ear and sounds, there is the hearing consciousness. And likewise, smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness, the tactile consciousness, and the mind consciousness, perceiving things in the mind. You know, in regard to the Sanyakanda, the aggregate of perception, I said that you know, this works based on uh, previous experiences, what we have, you know, seen, heard, uh, what we know, it's based on that. And if we, you know, see or hear or get to know something we have never met um, before, then, you know, it's like, what is this? So then the mind cannot come up with, you know, a concept, ah, oh, this is a house, this is a person, or this is such person. To give you an example, you know, I've been going to Ladakh, the Indian Himalayas, um, many times. My first time was in 1991. Apparently, 
one very remote valley in Ladakh, the Zanskar Valley, um, the first car that got into that remote valley, that was in 1974. And so the people, you know, the Indian Himalaya, like Ladakh, it's really a very remote area, and there are these huge mountains but and valleys, and you know people there are villages, people live there, a very frugal isolate isolated life, and for them, you know it's by walking over the high mountain passes that they get you know somewhere else, and they have uh, yaks to transport things, or they have little horses also as means of transport, and they ride on horses. So for these Ladakhi people, you know, for going somewhere, then they would take their horse and their yaks to put things on or to ride on them. So means of transport were these animals. And so then in 74, when the first car, kind of a jeep, arrived in that Zanskar Valley, um, you know, people came and looked at this strange something, and, you know, the fact had been, it had been moving, it had been transporting people, it had been transporting things, and so for them, they concluded this must be some kind of an animal, and so they went and cut grass and put the grass in front of the jeep. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, when perception does not come up with a concept of what it is, then it must be told, you know, by somebody else. Well, you know, this is called like this, or this is used for this. So that's how we learn as children. You know, it's a, a process that we go through when we are small. Okay. Now, third and fourth foundations of mindfulness. So, as you know, the first foundation of mindfulness is kaya nupasana satipatthana. So it means mindfulness of the body or bodily phenomena, material phenomena. This corresponds to the first aggregate. Then the second foundation is the vedana nupasana satipatthana. So to be mindful of the feeling tone of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and this corresponds to the second aggregate. Then the third foundation of mindfulness is citta nupasana, satipatthana, mindfulness of mental states. The fourth one is Dhammanupasana, Satipatthana, mindfulness <coughs> of mind objects or mindfulness of Dhammas. Now, you know, we must understand that in 
the Buddhist teaching of how the mind is understood is, as I said, there are mental factors, the jeta-sikhas, such as perception as um, the Vedana, as the virya effort and sada and loba and, and so on. So there are the mental factors and then there is the, the consciousness and as I said, six types of consciousness the eye consciousness, ear and so on. And so in any given moment when we perceive something through the six sense doors so what we you know, generally refer to as the mind, it's, it includes the, the consciousness itself, the seeing consciousness, let's say, plus a number of the mental factors. And these mental factors, you know, they arise depending on what is perceived. So it's not all the time all the 52 that are present. Seven are always present. One of them, Vedana, another Sanya, because they are so important in the whole you know, recognition what is perceived. You know, sometimes mental factor of Loba is present, sometimes not. Sometimes Virya is present, sometimes not. So that differs. But the fact is that there is always the consciousness, the seeing consciousness, accompanied by some mental factors. And so, the third foundation of mindfulness, the citta nupasana satipatthana, uh, mindfulness of the mind states, is said to mean that one knows, you know, the state of the mind, whether, you know, it's an angry mind, whether it's a compassionate mind, whether it's a greedy mind, whether it's a focused mind, whether it's a restless mind, and so on. And it is explained that, you know, the consciousness itself, this is just knowing there is a visible object or a sound or a thought. And this is like the clear, transparent water. But then, depending on the mental factors that are present, then these mental factors are like the dye that one puts into the water. Let's say the mental factor of anger is present. And so, let's say this mental factor, it's like red dye. So one puts red dye into the water, so the water becomes red. Or if um, compassion is present, and you know, that's like the orange dye, and one puts that into the water, the water turns orange. If the mental factor of one-pointedness, samadhi is present and the mind becomes very focused, 
and you know that's like the green dye, the water becomes green. So basically with Chittanupassana, Satipatthana, one is aware kind of the whole thing, the whole, you know, the mind as a whole uh, in general. You know, mind affected by lust, mind affected by restlessness, mind affected by um, compassion, tranquility, and so on. One knows that. Then the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Dhammanupassana, Satipatthana, is the contemplation of Dhammas, sometimes translated as um, mind objects. And there is a debate on what belongs here. Um, the classical definition is that the five hindrances belong here, but also the five aggregates, then the six sense bases, the internal sense bases, the external sense bases. Internal sense bases are you know, the, the, the eyes, the ears, the nose, kind of the organs. The external sense bases are the visible form, which is seen, the sound, which is heard, the smell, and so on. And then the seven factors of awakening also belong uh, here, plus the four noble truths. But then scholars, like for example Bhikkhu Analayo, comparing different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, the Pali version and uh, versions in uh, Chinese tradition. He uh, comes to the conclusion that, you know, what corresponds in these different versions is basically the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. That this is what is consistent. Once uh, Sayada Ujanaka was asked about the difference between the third and the fourth foundation of mindfulness, and he gave a very pragmatic and practical explanation. He said, whatever is not contained in the first three foundations of mindfulness, that comes into the fourth. <laughs> it's kind of the container for everything else. Another way we can look at the difference between the third and the fourth foundation of mindfulness is this way. You know, as I said, the five hindrances are included in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Dhammanupassana, and one of the hindrances is uh, sense desire, for example. But in the third foundation, 
you know, chitta, nupasana, it's like a mind affected by, by lust or by desire. And so in the fourth one, it's sense desire, desire. So <laughs> how to see that? One way of seeing it is, as I said, in the third foundation of mindfulness, the citta nupasana, it's kind of looking at the whole thing, you know, the citta and the citta sikhas, a mind affected by desire. Just see the whole thing. Now, in the fourth foundation, the Dhamma Nupasana, um, then it would be to, to be more specifically aware of just the sense desire, you know, just the mental factor, the Jeta Sika. I mean, it's very technical, <laughs> mm-hmm. and in practical experience, it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. So, and again, what Sayadaw Ujjanaka said that, you know, this is just kind of um, a theoretical um, division of, you know, categories of experiences or where we can uh, place our mindfulness. But, you know, when it comes down to actual practice, we don't need to know to which category of mindfulness this belongs. The important thing is that we really experience it, you know, and see the nature of, let's say, desire, the mind affected by desire, desire, what it does, the nature of it, uh, and so on. The next question here about daily practice at home, I will answer tomorrow in the closing round. Then another question. Most Westerners went to study with Sayado Upandita, but you choose Chamie Sayado instead. How did you make that decision? I didn't decide. <laughs> it just so happened that I met Chamye Sayadol or Sayadol Ujjanaka. And it was actually here in Australia. I was traveling as a backpacker, but I wanted to go to do a retreat. And then it just so happened that this Burmese uh, meditation teacher came and had a retreat in Kurajong near Sydney. And so I went, and that was my meeting beside Ujjanaka and immediately a very deep connection to him. And that's why I stayed with him, and when I went to Burma, I went to his meditation center. Next question. What is the difference exactly between Thai forest and Burmese? And to give you the exact answer, I don't know. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) Um, You know, you have heard of the Thai forest tradition. I have mentioned it uh, several times in this retreat. And then there is the Burmese tradition, um, Burmese tradition of 
meditation or Burmese tradition of Buddhism. You know, there are slight differences in each country where Buddhism um, prevails or you know is lived by part of the of the people. Um, you know, even within the Burmese Buddhist tradition, there are many differences. Um, you know, the way the scriptures are interpreted, but then especially uh, the practices of meditation, how to approach the meditation practice. You know, in that paper I have read uh, some days ago, you know, different meditation forms, techniques have evolved <coughs> in Burma, like the meditation based on the teachings of Mingun Chetavan Sayadaw, with Mahasi Sayadaw as a prominent example, or then what has turned into the Goenka type of meditation, mm-hmm. and so on. So it's not so uniform. So the distinction between Burmese and Thai or Thai forest is not so clear-cut. Maybe one you know, feature that stands out in the Thai forest tradition, you know, Achan Cha was a prominent example of that tradition. His teacher Achan Mun or Achan Mahabhuva is the fact you know, as the the name suggests, that they really lived in the forest, in the jungle, that they lived and practiced there, you know, in contrast to the monks who lived in the village monastery. And Ajahn Chah, as a, you know, young novice, he grew up in a village monastery, so he got to experience what that was but then he realized, you know, the monks in the village monasteries, they have to do a lot of rituals, um, you know, ceremonies, uh, when people die, when people are born, blessings, when people get married, a uh, new house, a house blessing, all these kind of rituals and ceremonies. And usually the monks, uh, then they were became also counselors. People would go to the monks in the village monastery and tell them about their problems, you know, problems maybe with um, a neighbor they had some quarrels over rights of land or problems with, you know, working in the fields like the weather um, or pests uh, assailing or, you know, problems in the family with their wives or with unruly children, whatever. And so then Ajahn Chah realized, you know, that these monks, they had little time to practice meditation or, you know, some monks were simply not interested uh, in the actual practice of meditation. And so then that's why he left the village monastery and you know, did what other monks uh, did, you know, living in the 
forest, going on Tudong from one place to another, and you know, practice a lot of, of meditation, really with the aim of, you know, to become free, to become liberated. And, you know, not only leading a virtuous life, being a monk, following the 227 precepts, you know, by that already accumulating a lot of merit. Um, but really taking the teachings of the Buddha to heart, you know, and practice them in a way to get the utmost out of it or the complete liberation. And so when Achan established his monastery, it was really out in the forest, in the jungle, and was very rustic, the conditions, and just going to the village in the morning at daybreak. Sometimes it included to walk one hour, two hours to the next village to get some food, come back to the monastery, eat the food, then do some chores, then have some rest in the afternoon, again do some chores in the monastery, sweep and um, pull the water out of the well, taking a shower, and then uh, meditate in the evening and in the night, and uh, could be up to midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, go to rest, get up at three o'clock, meditate before going on arms round, and so on. So quite, quite tough. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, you know, some the some forms of the meditation practice in Burmese, then um, they have also been quite tough, you know, like the bell going off at 3 a.m. in the meditation center, and one is supposed to practice meditation uh, until 10 at night. Next question. What are your thoughts on secular mindfulness? I'm curious to hear what your concerns are and what you think gets lost. Secular mindfulness, you may have heard of MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. that has become very popular And so this is an approach to deal with pain, you know, when people are sick, um, to deal with pain and with stress. And it was an American doctor, John Kabat-Zinn, who had been practicing at the IMS Meditation Center in Massachusetts. in the USA and so he thought you know this approach of being mindful of especially you know the bodily sensations but then also the mind's reaction that this approach would be very helpful you know in a uh, setting of dealing with patients and so 
he took that approach of being mindful, the mindfulness, you know, out of the Buddhist context and then implemented it in hospitals and, you know, health um, professionals. And so this has evolved into these MBSR courses, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which usually are eight-week, an eight-week program where people attend every week and they get taught how to use mindfulness to deal with their physical pain, but also to use and to deal with their mental um, suffering resulting from that. And it has proved quite beneficial. So many people, many patients have really benefited from this approach. So, you know, this is is very good. I mean, if people, you know, get less stressed with their pain and, you know, are not so much suffering from their pain, great. You know, that's wonderful. What um, can be problematic is the fact that although you know, these courses are apparently taught in a really secular way, not using Buddhist terms and not referring, you know, to Buddhist teachings and so on. Um, but somehow, you know, with meditation also becoming more popular in mainstream society and mindfulness meditation, so then people think that this mindfulness training, the MBSR, is what Buddhist mindfulness meditation is. And so then assuming, ah, it's just about uh, stress relief, basically. And so to go through life with, with more ease, with less stress. So that the whole point of the Buddha's teaching, you know, gets lost. And, um, you know, that the Buddha's teaching about complete liberation, you know, from the defilements, from greed, hatred, and delusion, so, t- so that this kind of gets lost in the long run. And another danger that lies, you know, in the propagation of mindfulness um, is that it is used, you know, because when people are more mindful, then they are more present, and you know, in their like in a work environment they are more mindful, they are more present, so they work more efficiently. And so to use mindfulness for more efficiency uh, in their work, in their life. And, um, you know, that curbs the whole getting better, getting uh, more mindful, you know, more productivity, Mm -hmm. one can produce more, one can consume more, (laughs) maybe. So that's... uh, dangerous side. 
And, you know, in mindfulness in the context of the Buddha's teaching, we always must remember that, you know, this very basic and important quality of mindfulness must always be in the service of liberation, you know, complete liberation. This is what the Buddha had in mind. And this is what um, the Buddha's teaching, you know, can can provide the complete liberation. Next question. Would euthanasia be considered an unwholesome death in Buddhism? So that's a difficult question. It's not so black and white, not so easy to answer. Um, but where to begin? You know, the baseline of the Buddha's teaching is, you know, do not uh, harm and heart yourself and others or the first precept, Panatipata, Naramani Sikapadang Samadhyami, to refrain from killing living beings. Um, So, you know, Like if any of the unwholesome roots are involved in an act, you know, the unwholesome roots being greed, hatred, delusion, lopa, dosa, moha. So, if one of these unwholesome roots is involved in an act, then this un- it becomes an unwholesome act, an unwholesome action, which is karma, if it's an intentional action, and based on the law of cause and effect, an unwholesome action produces an unwholesome effect. Now it is said that a karma produces its corresponding effect. Certain factors need to be present in that you know, making of karma. So in the case of killing a living being, so there must be there must be a living being present, there must be the recognition, this is a living being, then there must be the intention to kill that living being, then there must be the actual act of carrying out this killing then the living being must actually die of that act. And there must also be, you know, the recognition that this being has died and 
you know, there must be a certain satisfaction or gladness that the being is killed. So only when all these different factors are present, only then will that karma produce a full effect. Now, if some of these factors are not present, it will not produce a full-fledged effect. So then the effect is somehow not that bad or not that unwholesome. (coughs) So, and another thing to consider is like, you know, the Buddha just said, you know, it is like this and this is like that, but, you know, we must take the responsibility of what we are doing. And sometimes, you know, people take the responsibility of transgressing panatipata and engage in some killing because maybe it's for their own survival or to defend themselves. Um, Going back to Ladakh, like the people there, they grow some barley in summertime, but you know, they cannot grow anything in winter, and it's like winter for six, seven, eight months, or very cold. And so in the short time where they can grow something, you know, they can grow barley on this high altitude. And, you know, they live very simple and they have some sheep and, uh, you know, yuck milk, they make some cheese. But to get through winter, and, you know, they don't have deep freezers, they don't have fridges, and uh, they cannot, you know, go and buy things in the in the shop and stock them. There are no shops in these villages. So then what people usually do in autumn is to kill a yak or some yaks, some sheep, some goats. So to have um, something to eat during the long winter months. And you know apparently then kind of they ask forgiveness of the yak, you know, to kill it. And um, do the killing. Or some years ago here in Australia, um, a meditator told me, you know, what what should I have done? Um, My house was being eaten by termites. Problem here. And so, you know, if one has enough money to buy another plot of land and to build a new house, then maybe one could say, okay, uh, this is my dana to the termites, you know, eat my house, (laughs) have a good feast. Not many people have that uh, much wealth. And so then, you know, what to do to protect one's house one is living in. And this meditator, she said that, you know, she didn't want to kill the termites, but 
what else to do. And so she said, you know, she told the termites, like, in one week time, I'm going to use this poison. Um, I put out the poison, you know, that termites die, but I don't want to kill you, so please go away. <laughs> and, you know, just telling them every day, now in five days, in three days, in one day, I will put out this poison, you know, please go away. I don't have, I don't really want to kill you, but, you know, it's into out of ill will. And then, you know, putting out the poison. So clearly showing that there was not a strong intention of killing. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so, in that case, one just takes upon oneself the responsibility, you know, of carrying out this act, being fully aware this will have some negative consequences, but, you know, accepting it and living with it. <coughs> you know, in the case of euthanasia, you know, where people are very sick, have a lot of pain, you know, terminally ill, this is at least what the doctors say, and so then, you know, people wanting to die, not um, enduring this pain, these unpleasant uh, feelings. Um, you know, I suppose many of these people, you know, being confronted with this strong painful feelings caused by the sickness it's it's trying you know it's difficult we know that you know either we have had very strong painful feelings due to sickness or treatment or in meditation we have experienced very strong excruciating pains so we know how difficult it is uh, to bear and we also know how <coughs> easy the reaction of aversion, ill will towards the pain is. And so, you know, if people, sick people are confronted with this strong pain, of course there is the ill will, there is the anger towards the pain. <coughs> and so, you know, if people want to finish their life in that state of really being upset and angry, and then going out of the life in this way, according you know, to the Buddha's teaching, this is not very beneficial to die uh, in such a state of mind with anger, aversion. You may have heard of Elisabeth Kübler-Ross. She was actually Swiss, but then she lived in the United States, and she, you know, did a lot of work with people dying. She said she set up hospices and so on, and you know, she set up this theory that people 
uh, dying people, you know, go kind of to, through these five phases. The first phase being denial, you know, not wanting to accept that this terminal illness uh, has befallen them, kind of the doctors must be wrong or the tests uh, are not correct, maybe I need a second, a third test and so on. So it's a denial, not me. Then once they can no longer denial, deny that this is the fact, then the second phase is the anger. Anger. Angry at the sickness, at the doctors, whatever. And then the third phase is the bargaining phase. So saying, you know, maybe if I change my diet, you know, I give up my favorite foods and drinks, uh, maybe if I do this, then uh, I recover, I get healthy. Or, you know, to bargain with God, uh, I promise you I'm going to be a good mother, you know, I won't quarrel with my daughter anymore. And after the bargaining phase, the fourth one is depression. Really get depressed about the state and, you know, looming death and everything. So it's just very depressive. And then the fifth phase is that of acceptance. Of really coming to terms with the situation, with the illness, with everything. That's the way it is. Okay. And with that, you know, the mind calming down, the mind feeling more at ease, that they can feel more at ease with themselves and the world around. And so, you know, if people do not resort in the first place to euthanasia, and you know take their lives then you know with that um, these people would have maybe the, um, the opportunity you know to go through these phases and really come to a place of acceptance of ease of mind In regard to suicide, taking one's life, there is just one sutta, which is interesting, but still, you know, it doesn't answer all the questions. Um, it's from the Majjhimanikaya, 144, the advice to Janna. Um, this monk, Janna, was... Uh, very sick, gravely ill, and Venerable Sariputta and another monk went to this sick monk to ask how he was doing, if he was getting better or not, and the monk said, no, I'm not getting better, it's actually getting worse, and, um, you know, it's really terrible, the pain that I go through. And so then Venerable Janna said, you know, I'm not getting better and it's just getting uh, worse. 
And so I shall use the knife, he says. And that's an expression to say, I'm going to commit suicide. But then Venerable Sariputta, you know, one of the main disciples of the Buddha, foremost in wisdom, he said, let the Venerable Channa not use the knife. Let the Venerable Channa live. We want the Venerable Channa to live. If he lacks suitable food, I will go in search of suitable food for him. If he lacks suitable medicine, I will go in search of suitable medicine. If he lacks a proper attendant, I will attend on him. Let the Venerable Channa not use the knife. Let the Venerable Channa live. We want the Venerable Channa to live. <coughs> and then Venerable Channa said, Sariputta, it's not that I lack proper food and medicine and an attendant. I have um, all of that. Um, and I have worshipped the teacher, the Buddha, for a long time. Um, so please, my friend Sariputta, remember this. The Bhikkhu Channa will use the life blamelessly. And then Venerable Sariputta went on to ask Dhamma questions to Venerable Channa to see whether he had gained deep understanding of the teachings, you know, whether he had any deep realizations, whether he was an arahant or not. And he answers them all, you know, in, in accordance with the teachings of the Buddha, deep understanding. And um, then Venerable Sariputta gave him a little teaching and then Venerable Sariputta and the other monk left and it is said soon after they had gone the Venerable Channa used the knife meaning he had committed suicide um, and then Venerable Sariputta and the monk went to the Buddha and told him the encounter with Venerable Channa and saying, the Venerable Channa has used the knife. What is his destination? What is his future course? That's what was usually asked when a monk died. They went to the Buddha. And the Buddha then said, Sariputta, didn't the Bhikkhu Channa declare to you his blamelessness and yes and um, you know the final sentence of the Buddha is the Bhikkhu Channa used the knife blamelessly so saying that the Bhikkhu Channa being an arahant fully liberated um, there was no fault with him uh, committing suicide. In the, but even the commentaries to this sutta, they differ in their opinion. And um, 
one explanation is excruciating pain might motivate even an arahant to take his own life, not from aversion, but simply from a wish to be free from unbearable pain. You know, how to take that. (laughs) So, we need to ask the Buddha (laughs) to get the definite answer. Next question, or three questions. Do Buddhists have to behave? No. Do, do Buddhists have to believe in devas and hungry ghosts and Brahma? Do Buddhists have to believe in reincarnation? Can Buddhists believe in the Big Bang, quantum theory, evolution, or cognitive neuroscience? So first of all, Buddhists don't have to believe anything. You remember in one talk I mentioned the Kalama Sutta, that Sutta where the Buddha said, you know, don't believe uh, because it's in your scriptures. Don't believe the teacher. Don't believe because it has been handed down for generations. But, you know, practice it yourself. Find out yourself. So in regard to reincarnation, devas, brahmas, hungry ghosts, and so on, find out for yourself. You know, it's not a matter of belief or not belief. And, you know, belief in the Big Bang, quantum theory, evolution, and so on. We must, again, remember what the purpose of the Buddha's teaching was. The teaching of the Buddha aims at freedom from suffering, at liberation from greed, hatred and delusion, basically. (coughs) One time the Buddha said, you know, I basically teach two things. There is suffering and there is the end of suffering. And in order to understand suffering, and then to become free of suffering, you know, what is important to know? Uh, Does it make a difference whether I believe in a Brahma or not? Does this help to understand the suffering? Does this help to relieve the suffering, to get rid of the causes of suffering? So, you know, this is... um, the Buddha's teaching is not something, a teaching to believe or not to believe, but the Buddha's teaching is something to practice uh, in order to become free, free from suffering, <coughs> free from the defilements. Another question. What do you recommend regarding consumption of films, TV, fiction novels, etc.?
I would say the answer is in line with the previous answer. You know, does it in a way help my understanding of the predicament of being human, um, of being subject to suffering? And does it help in understanding a way out of it? So, you know, whatever film or book, novel we read, do we find something there that helps us in this understanding and contributes in one way or another um, to, the, to, li uh, to liberation, to lessen the defilements, uh, to let go of them? Then, next one. The Buddha decided to teach the Dhamma with the thought that there are people with only a little dust in their eyes who could understand. And we hear of many bhikkhus and bhikkhunis achieving enlightenment after hearing the Buddha speak. But what of the practitioners with eyes full of mud? Do we hear anything in the suttas of the Buddha's interactions with less advanced meditators? If so, what does he say to them? Yeah, interesting question. <laughs> and I uh, didn't have you know, the time to do an extensive uh, search in the suttas. Um, But, you know, in one way it was because of the Buddha's omniscience, you know, knowing beings with their inclinations and tendencies and characters, that, you know, he was so skilled in giving a person just perfect, right advice with which the person then, you know, had a breakthrough got some deep realization. You know, it just pops to my mind, at the time of the Buddha, there was a monk who had very dull intellectual faculties. And, you know, he was sincere, being a monk, he wanted to follow the rules and the <coughs> practice, but, you know, he could not memorize all the, the rules and also his meditation practice. Um, you know, the mind was restless and he couldn't, you know, get the mind focused and so and other monks tried to help him but then after some time realizing, you know, that he wouldn't make any progress or that their advice would not really be helpful, they kind of didn't want to interact with him anymore. And so then after some time this monk got very, you know, depressed and thought, oh, well, you know, I'm so useless and so I disrobe and go back to lay life. But then the Buddha came to know about him and so he went to him and asked, why do you want to disrobe? And he said, oh. And then the Buddha said, well, no, you know, try this. And he gave him a piece of white cloth and he told the monk, you know, take this cloth and rub your hands on this cloth. The monk did what the Buddha said, 
And, you know, then he realized that the white cloth got stained, it got dirty. And for him that was the perfect teaching. You know, he understood the impermanence and uh, whatever. I forgot, you know, if he just got deep insight or reaching any stage of enlightenment, whatever. <laughs> but, so, you know, on the one side there is the Buddha's really um, skill in just knowing which instruction is the right one for each person. But of course, you know, sometimes, yeah, the Buddha, you know, giving a talk and um, sometimes his advice simply would be, you know, engage in dana and keep the sila, uh, practice renunciation, you know, very basic things. So maybe you know this was the basic advice he gave to people with lots of mud in their eyes. Then another question. Can you speak about how you feel that your meditation practice has affected your life and what are the comparisons between between um, or between uh, a monastic and a lay person? the comparison or contrasts between being a monastic and a lay person. A contrast is that now I need to go and buy shampoo (laughs) (laughs) before I needed to buy razor blades or get razor blades to shave my head. No shampoo. Um, You know, I'm in the very fortunate uh, situation that after having disrobed, it's now almost five years, that I didn't, I didn't have to go to a lay life where I had to do to um, to search work, you know, a paid job. Um, although I disrobed, but basically the way I live my life is the same as before, as a a monastic, you know, practicing and uh, teaching, sharing the Dhamma. In the last four or five years, you know, more time um, has been spent with taking care of my parents and after my mother died, taking care of my dad suffering from Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, basically I do not engage in other works or other occupations in my life, but it's basically <coughs> uh, the same as before. And so 
I never had to kind of face the challenge, you know, of, um, you know, looking for a paid job where I have to go and work to earn a living. Um, of course, there's a difference, you know, of walking around as a monastic or as a lay person. And because um, in the last five years since I disrobed, I have been living more in the West, you know, and with taking care of my parents, with my dad. So moving about in a lay environment, lay people environment. And so I've noticed that it's much more convenient much more, in a way, easy. Um, you know, when I was going as a monastic to the West, and, you know, I stayed with my parents and visiting friends and walking around in town, you know, people always have, a, have looked, kind of, and sometimes, you know, <laughs> but I never, you know, encountered any hostility. But, you know, people didn't know what I was, or what I was representing. And um, so because they didn't exactly know what I was, who I was, so there was always a certain distance. You know, the robe and my shaved head created a certain distance, which, yeah, was just the way it was. Um, but it became more obvious, this distance that people kept to me after I had disrobed, you know, and this distance, or me being different in, in the physical appearance was no longer there, you know. When I was just wearing kind of normal clothes and had some hair on my head, then, um, then I noticed, you know, that, yeah, this, there, there was no more distance and, you know, kind of um, normal contact with people in the streets, in the shops, in the bus, in the train, so on, was there, you know, a little exchange of words uh, or a comment on this or on that. Whereas before, that wouldn't happen. People went on, on this, most, not all. Uh, but then, so this fell away. And so, you know, living in that environment while taking care of my dad, and then especially, you know, uh, when my dad was still able, you know, to walk, go for little excursions and so on. So, you know, just to be a normal-looking <laughs> person taking care of this elderly man. And then sometimes it was funny. Um, then people asking me, um, like, saying, uh, your husband. <laughs> and then I told them, well, my father. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> was funny. Um, how my meditation practice has affected my life? That's a deep question. Um, I mean, I don't know if 
how my life would be if I have not encountered meditation practice. Um, as I said, I think yesterday it was in the talk, you know, since quite a young age I had this yearning to understand my mind, the working of the mind, and, you know, to find a way to live my life, to be of service uh, to others. And so, you know, with the practice, I kind of found a way with which, you know, I could understand my mind better, the workings of my mind, and a way to be of service. So by you know, having the practice, having practiced, still practicing, um, feeling so fortunate that, you know, I feel there is a, a meaning to this life, like a deep meaning to, to use this life, to use it in the best way possible, exactly to understand the heart, the mind better, and uh, to to move around in the world, you know, in a way that is beneficial to me, to other people, to other beings, and uh, to to move around, to behave in the world, to harm uh, as little uh, as possible. And, you know, to to, to deeply understand that mm, deep happiness or uh, deep peace um, does not come about by you know having the perfect um, sense sensory input it, you know it doesn't come from the outside but that it really comes comes from inside that it is independent of the outer uh, situation or condition. So to find um, that I myself are responsible for my happiness and peace and it's not the other people or it's not the uh, uh, circumstances that need to be in a certain way that I can be happy and at peace. And so with this practice, you know, sometimes experiencing deeper states of happiness and peace and sometimes not so deep. Mind is shaken or overcome with some uh, defilements. But basically knowing, you know, I cannot blame others. It's my job, it's my duty um, to work on it. So then, finished. Um, so let's just sit for a couple of minutes to all to settle it down, let it settle down.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.